Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This episode of Red Inca, we talked to the man who, till recently, was the CEO of Pakistan Cricket. Wazim Khan, a former CEO of the Pakistan Cricket Board. We talk about his career as a cricketer, how he rose up in administration, taking the PCB job, politics, becoming a celebrity, having your wage discussed, the New Zealand and England cancellations, and ultimately leaving his position early. Let's go back to the start. Obviously, that's the main reason that you're on. But let's go back to your origin story, if you will. You brought up in England, but you had Pakistani parents. For those who don't know about the the Tebbit test, which was a racist politician who said that there are a lot of English uh, kids born in England who were supporting teams that weren't England. Did you support England and Pakistan, or Pakistan and England, or just Pakistan? Well, Jared, I grew up in a in a household where my father was, you know, he he loved his cricket and and other uncles and everything else. So. You always grew up. I also grew up in the 70s when racism was pretty rife in, in the UK. So you kind of hung on to people who looked like you and thought like you and, and believed in the same things as you. So kind of I grew up being a Pakistan supporter. And when England didn't play Pakistan, then I supported England. But pretty mm. much, I think, because of the family heritage, as you get Scotsmen and Scots women who live in London when Scotland play England in football, the Tebbit test doesn't seem to extend to them. Yeah, for me, I always thought it was a weird concept. But as someone who has children with Sri Lankan, Australian and English backgrounds, my kids tend to pick whoever's winning as much (laughs) as anything at certain times. You were the first, I want to get this right, were you the first British Pakistani Muslim to sign a professional contract? Yeah, Yeah. British Pakistani, yeah. That's a huge thing. You and I probably both agree on this. There probably still aren't enough Asians in professional cricket in England, considering when you play club cricket, you know, there seem to be Asian kids everywhere playing or Asian adults dominating. But at that point coming through, for you to be the first, you're not that old. So it's quite remarkable that that hadn't happened before. Yeah, look, it it was back in 1990. So as a 19-year-old, I kind of got got selected. I, I remember as well, Jared, you know, a lot of people from my local inner city community kind of telling me that I was wasting my time. And that, you know, it didn't happen to people like us, you know, but I, from the age of 13, I just wanted to play pro cricket and I got selected for the Warwickshire in the 13s. Ironically, in the squad of 15, I think I was the only uh, state schoolboy <laughs> within that squad. And um, I managed to come through the ranks and, and, and get offered a contract at the age of 19. The year that I got offered a contract, I scored, I think, about 3,000 runs across all cricket that year, including England in 19s, Warwickshire in the 19s, Warwickshire second eleven club cricket and I think I scored about 1600s that year 
And then I got awarded a contract um, at the age of 19. I, I didn't realize at the time that I was the first British-born Pakistani to be offered a contract at that stage, but I kind of started to understand the significance of that as time went on. Also, the I mean, you sort of skirted over the fact you played England under-19s, right? Yeah. yeah. That must have been a huge moment, but it also must have been, I don't want to say confusing for you, but, you know, you grew up supporting Pakistan. You were the only person sort of, as, as you said, you know, from your background, doubly over realistically at that point. It must have been a weird world for you to have entered that particular England under-19 setup. Probably not so much, Jared, to be honest with you. From a playing perspective, I think my, my, my career goals were always to try and play for England. And I think that because I was in the English system and came through the English system and had had the opportunity through the English system, you know, my goal was always to try and try and play for England. I very much saw myself as English from that perspective. So there was never any problems uh, from my side, from a playing side of things, because that was an ambition. And I was close to getting selected on an England A tour in the year that I averaged 49, opening for Warwickshire in 1995. I was the first reserve, but never got on and then never got the opportunity again. So no, there was no, there's no problems from my side on that. Mm. You had a bit of a, I hate saying this to people, but a bit of a journeyman career. You, you, you went around, you did the circuit, you, uh, Warwickshire, you went Sussex and Derby as well. Were they the other two? Yeah. 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 Look, I, I was, I was an average cricketer. And I think that, um, I think when you, when you reflect back on your career, you look at perhaps, you know, the way I reflect on it is that professional cricket gave me the, the credibility and platform to go on and do other things. And it opened doors and it gave me those opportunities. So I very much see that probably God had that plan for me rather than going on and playing for England. I, I think I just wasn't mentally tough enough. I had the ability, but I got caught up in the day-to-day kind of county journeyman kind of mentality of the odd day, or if it rains, it gives me another day off. And, you know, it was that sort of thing. So, you know, I didn't have that sort of, I guess, absolute single-mindedness that someone like Nick Knight had, who I played with at Warwickshire. It was a very different feel about it. Mm. You know, there was just this single-mindedness, this selfishness that I'm going to play for England. And he went on and played 100 uh, white ball matches for England. So so that was probably the difference. You talk about that and, you know, obviously you and I have a lot of friends who, you know, played in that. There, there seems to be almost like a, it becomes a bit of a job and a bit of a grind county cricket because there's so few days off. You go from, you know, yeah. league to league and you, you spend all your time on the A1 or the M1. It just became a, you know, it went from being the thing you're passionate about when you were 13 to maybe just being a job. And, you know, you never could kick it into that performance level. Yeah, I, I always needed a cutting edge, and, and that's why I loved playing in Australia. So I had five, six seasons in Australia playing because, as you know, you, it's Saturday to Saturday, and you mm. practice. So there's, there's there's something really important and valuable on the match that you play on the Saturday. The day after day sort of scenario, you could play. And it's Warwickshire Second Eleven, for example. You could play a three day game and two one dayers, and then you go and play club cricket on a Saturday. So. You know, you could easily play five or six days a week and that went on for six months. So mm. you become a little bit robotic in terms of, you know, it's, it's a quantity of matches you continue to play. And similarly with with county matches, you know, you played so many games, you played white ball matches. If you weren't playing, you'd go back and play second 11. So it just went on and on. And I think that, you know, my goal had always been to, to get into the Warwickshire first team. It took me five years to get there. Wow. Uh, having played second 11 for five years. So I made my debut in 95, having signed in 1990. You know, we had a, a strong side. Lara was there in 94. And I mean, saying you had a strong side <laughs> is probably, uh, uh, I mean, yeah. that was almost the three-peat era when you were around, wasn't it? I mean, there was, uh, everything was going on in Warwickshire cricket oh, at that it, point. It was amazing. We, you know, there's an incredible team, won the treble, won uh, the NatWest in 93, and then 
won three out of three out of four competitions in 94 and then won two in 95. But it was such a strong team. Um, on the one hand, it really made you push yourself. But you also got to the, to the point where, you know, you score 100 after 100 in second in cricket. And there's no opportunity for you to get in the first team. But when I did in 95, I kind of fulfilled a goal. And then the following year, I scored, I think, 300s in 96. But for some reason, I just lost my focus. And maybe my end goal was always to try and get there. And it took me so long to get there. Perhaps if I'd broken through in a year or two of having signed on, it might have been very different. But yeah, I, I just didn't continue that hunger. And, you know, there's nobody to blame but myself. And my, my career sort of petered out and I kind of stuck around for another three or four years, went to Sussex, um, had a decent start, but again, just had a, didn't really kick on from what I should have done. And I think that's the reality of it. I think once you start to put your hand up and, and honestly reflect on your own career and say, well, actually it wasn't other people's fault. It was actually, I could have done more. Mm. Um, and that's certainly how I see my career. What age did you retire? I finished at 30. Quite early? Yeah, so I finished uh, because I was kind of just going on and it was just kind of happening in another season. And I just thought, well, where am I going? At some stage, I'm going to have to start a life outside of cricket. Mm. I hadn't uh, gone to university because every year I'd gone to Australia in the winters and New Zealand. So I kind of was left with that dilemma that most sportsmen are left with. I remember packing my, my gear and putting it in the back of my, my car and driving back from Derbyshire. And the reality suddenly hit that for the first time since I was 19, I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing, you know, for the rest of my life. And so it, it's, it's a harsh sort of reality, but I also felt a sense of relief mm. because I got stuck into the day-to-day -day pressures of, you know, that fear factor of trying to earn a next contract and, you know, playing with fear. And, you know, it's not a healthy place to be when you have this win-lose mentality. You know, I'd kind of lost the whole idea of trying to focus on mastery and trying to be the best that I can be. And it was all about trying to earn a new contract. So your focus shift as well. And, I guess ending all of that and in fact my career was completely petered out that it was such a relief to be driving away thinking right that's it so you're 30 what's the next move from there then well i went back and i thought well look what, what are my core skills what do i know and i thought well cricket's all i know i, I went back to inner city birmingham again where i started and moved in with mum at the age of 30 trying to work out what i'm going to do next and i wrote to all the local schools and said you know basically ex-play for hire sort of uh, as a coach, because I was really keen on what cricket could do for young people. It, it got me out of my inner city area and, and gave me a better life. I traveled around the world and was able to play cricket, make some great friends. And, you know, what I was seeing in local communities was the fact that, that the whole aspirational aspect had gone. It was quite cool to leave school with no qualifications and do nothing with your life. Mm. So a lot of friends that I'd grown up with were suddenly, you know, were still there, hadn't moved away. So I, I just wanted to do more than just provide cricket coaching, but sort of some lifestyle coaching to some of the younger people to try and get them to aim high again. So I went in and coached initially for about a year, a year and a half, set up coaching in the community and just operated and did that for, for the first year and a half. It's a weird thing. So I'm at the age where a lot of the guys that I first started covering are now retiring and, you know, you built relationships up with them. Most of them, I would say that LinkedIn is like the graveyard. You know, you go onto LinkedIn yeah. and you look at your favorite first-class cricketer and they're three businesses in at this point on LinkedIn and none of them have worked. And maybe they've been a consultant somewhere, but you know that means they probably went in twice. And once they weren't famous anymore, that, that work probably went away. To start, what you're talking about is actually, that takes an entrepreneurial spirit like there's more to that than just going oh i'm a, I'm a former player and i'm going to do some coaching most players i would have thought 
in your position, you probably would have got a pretty cushy private school job if you would have wanted it, or you could have gone obviously back into cricket and got a job there. Starting that from scratch, I mean, you didn't really know how to start a business from scratch. So how do you sort of put all that together? I guess I just tried to learn. I think, you know, self-preservation is a real urger, isn't it? You know, I sort of <laughs> thought I need to earn an income and, and I need to do something. But it's really interesting. I always knew that I'd be okay, no matter what I did in life. And I always had a belief in myself that there was always something there that would help me move my life forward and, and opportunities would sort of come. And, and I kind of, you know, I'm sure we've chatted about it, but to chart back, you know, 20 years ago when I first set out and trying to buy some quick cricket equipment and trying to go into schools to where I am now, you know, it's, you know, if somebody could have said to me in 20 years time, this is what you're going to be doing, I would have probably pinched myself from what I was at the end of my career. And resilience is something I always had because in order to, to come through as a 19 year old, yeah. there was a lot of obstacles that I had to face, you know, both from a community perspective and perceptions, but I was always strong and, and, and always wanted to try and make sure that I, that I made it. And even surviving 10 years in county cricket when you never quite made it, required a lot of resilience and and something about you so uh, my attitude was always positive my attitude was always good and so I kind of set it up and I just thought it through about how I would do it and but I had a sense of freedom that I was mm. now doing something for myself as well and you know that if it worked or it didn't work it was all going to be down to me so I kind of backed myself at that in that situation and that's not really administration although you would have had to do administration from there are you then headhunted from that group that was that the cricket foundation is that what that was? yeah no so, yeah. so from there i went to the pca to the professional cricketers association okay. so i was approached about heading up their community program um where you use a lot of the, the members and the england players to go into communities and do work so i mean the, the thing for me was that it was going to provide me with a regular income and it was going to provide me with a sustainable income the coaching side was great. I'd started pulling away from coaching myself and I was using a lot of ex-players, particularly some of the Asian lads like Mohammed Sheikh, who played for Warwickshire, Kabir Ali, these sorts of guys to go into schools and coach. Whereas I was then going out trying to find new schools and all of that. So I was sort of becoming a bit of a sort of a manager, if you like, rather than a coach. So when the opportunity came around from the PCA and, and what, what I did very well, Jared, which was I kind of sold myself probably greater than what I was actually doing. So I made things sound even better and bigger than what I was doing. So I'd invite the PCA along and say, look, this is what I'm doing. You know, get 200 kids there, get Cadbury's to put 2,000 pounds in and put their names everywhere to look as though Cadbury was sponsoring it and show that real spirit that, look, I can do this for you guys as well. Mm. And then they came along and, and offered me the opportunity. So um, for about a year and a half, then I worked for the PCA. And then from there, what's the next, I mean, it's an incredible path, but what's the next administrative roles that you sort of go through at that point? Yeah. While I was there, I got seconded to work with the Cricket Foundation while I was at the PCA. Yep. So they'd set up this program called Chance to Shine. It was very much embryonic. They were running some pilots and the Cricket Foundation approached the PCA uh, and said, look, could we second this guy to come and help us with this? So I did that for two or three months at the beginning. Uh, and then they advertised for the ops director's role and said, um, you know, we'd like you to apply. So it was Mervyn King, the governor of the Bank of England, who was the, the president. And Mark Nicholas was involved and, and Duncan Fernley and people like that. So he had quite an illustrious group of people who really had this concept about taking cricket back into state school. So I applied for the ops director's job and, and got the role back in 2005. And how long do you stay in that before you move into the counter game again? I was the ops director for five years, and then I became chief executive. 
So a total of nine years, during which time we raised about £55 million as a charity, reached about 11,000 state schools, about two and a half million kids who'd never played cricket, about a million were girls. So we kind of developed that. And I kind of learned leadership, if you like, Jared, on the hoof. So I watched good people and what, you know, and my captaincy, I also captained Warwickshire under 13s right up to 19. So I had a, a bit of a, a sense for leadership and it was something that I thrived on. So I kind of picked a lot of things up and, and brought back to some of the skills that I'd acquired when I was captain and, and applied those now into the business environment because I had no formal qualifications. I didn't know how to write a business plan. So I, I Googled how to write a business plan when I first joined and, you know, all of those things, but I was determined to learn and get better. And that's how I kind of, I guess, set out on my leadership journey. So I left Chance to Shine or Cricket Foundation. It then converted into the Chance to Shine Foundation. And I left there in 2014. But prior to that, I kind of wrote, wrote an autobiography back in 2006, just about my experiences. And I remember when it was being reviewed, you know, people were like, well, Wasim Khan's written a autobiography. You know, who's he, you know, mm. to write an autobiography? And they were probably right. You know, I think the cricket journos just saw it purely as, well, surely, you know, it's about the hundreds he scored for England. And that's the sort of person that we want to read about who's played. But but my book dealt with a lot of failures as much as success. So I wrote it from an educational perspective mm. and it went on to be the wisdom book of the year in 2006. So again, I set my mind to it. I had no formal qualifications in English. It took me nine months to write. But again, once I started something, I was just determined to to, to do it and it was great also as a bit of a therapeutic thing for me as well, because there was a lot of demons still there from having not fulfilled my potential. So it just allowed me to to get rid of all of those and get it published. I mean, you're talking about Mervyn King and, and Mark Nicholas and the sorts of people that you'd have worked under and with in these sorts of environments. You said you didn't go to university. You went to state school. You're Asian. I mean, you and I have both been involved in English cricket for a lot of time. There's not a lot of people who have those three <laughs> things to begin with. You know, most kids come from private schools. Most kids are still white, whether they be white English or white South African or Zimbabwean or Australian or New Zealand, you know, and, and then you also have a, quite a lot of players who do still come through the university system, not as much um, anymore, obviously, but up until recently, that was certainly a thing. There must've been a part of you at one stage or another that had that sort of, not an imposter syndrome, but you know, sitting in this room with the, you know, Mervyn King from the Bank of England, and I didn't even go to university. And, you know, I'm a decent cricketer who never quite made it. Did you ever have to worry about any of that sort of stuff? Or was it, was there that inbuilt confidence in you where you could go, no, I think I can do this. I just need time to work it out. Yeah, I, I definitely think I could do this, but, but there was a sense of an imposter syndrome. Definitely. I think that because I'd kind of grown up with a lot of insecurities about where I belonged and and not quite making it and the fear of failure and, you know, just constantly feeling indebted for opportunities I was being given. You know, it, this certainly was another one where I felt indebted that I was given an opportunity. Little old me from Small Heath in Birmingham, geez, you know, I'm now sitting with the governor of the Bank of England. Thank you very much for, you know, for giving me the opportunity. And I, I had that kind of serving mentality in my own mind that, you know, I'd kind of done that all my life. So, yeah, I, look, I certainly had all of that. You know, I was sitting there and I was being scrutinized and being asked these intelligent questions that I'd never been asked before in my life. And it was stuff that I had to deal with, think on my feet and and think, you know, Mervyn King's suddenly going to ask me three questions and the tough questions. You know, my thought process doesn't work this way. And how do I not make myself look stupid? So I absolutely had 
that feeling. And I guess I had to work extra hard to, to try and make myself more knowledgeable about how the business world worked and try to work on my own way in terms of how I came across and how I spoke and all of those things I was very conscious of because, you know, I was pretty much in an environment where it was all sort of pretty much sort of, you know, upper class and people who spoke in a certain way and had certain backgrounds and had certain types of conversations, which were pretty alien to me. So I needed Mm. to adapt to all of that. But I was always able to keep my values and what I was about and where I came from. I never forgot that. But I certainly had, you know, going back to your question, I certainly had a bit of an imposter syndrome when I first set foot into the Bank of England and sat down and I remember my hands sweating as I went for that interview thinking, you know, God, what am I doing here? Reverse swing is one of the most incredible parts of our game, but it doesn't happen by accident. It comes from a team effort where each and every member has a job to prepare the ball as well as they can, and then through that group effort, they can get that ball to move gracefully through the air. And you know all this because you're a smart cricket fan, and yet you go out on the field to play with your balls in disarray. If you treat your pubic hair in a shoddy manner, you won't be able to pick up as many wickets as you'd like. But Manscaped have the invention for you. The Lawn Mower 4.0, guaranteed to make your balls reverse. Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0 is as graceful as a cover drive, as efficient as a Yorker in the depth. And the Lawnmower 4.0 is a true all-rounder, none of that bits and pieces nonsense. So if you're desperate for a breakthrough with your pubic hair, try Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code REDINCA. That's 20% off with free worldwide shipping at manscaped.com and use the code REDINCA. Let's get your balls going the other way. You go into the county game next. That's kind of the first time that you have a job where fans care. In some ways, that the job that you had before with Chance to Shine is more important to the growth of the game. But yeah. you, if you fail to convert this school into a Chance to Shine school, like it, it doesn't matter. Whereas no. your team loses all three formats of the game. And uh, what's the CEO doing? Why, why is this happening? Yeah, um, What's that like? Yeah, look, it, Jared, it's tough. When I joined Leicestershire, you know, they'd had 20 years of losses, uh, not 20 years of losses, but, you know, had declined massively. Yeah. You know, hadn't won a game in county championship since 2011. You know, I inherited a loss of a million pounds when I first joined. You know, that we'd made a combined loss of three million pounds in the previous three years prior to me joining. So for a county where you don't have test cricket or international cricket, it's very difficult because there is a direct relationship with amount of money that you make and how much you can invest in the squad. So you have to sort of balance up what the supporters want. And supporters obviously want to see you winning Mm. on the field. Now, in order to win, you've got to invest in some good players. Yes, the academy is there, but, you know, the academy is not going to produce you immediate results. And and Leicestershire had a history of losing academy players. You know, Stuart Broads, your James Taylors, these sorts of people, Luke Wrights, had all left at some stage by bigger counties who could offer them more money. So, you know, it was a difficult thing to reconcile. We managed to make a profit in the first three years, a very small profit. In the fourth year, we were due to have a concert because we'd become a bit of a concert venue. That fell through and we made a bit of a loss. And it's sad in some ways that that some fans, I guess, still view my time at Leicestershire as a bit of a failure because what they don't want to accept is the position in terms of what I picked the club up at when there'd been a million pounds of losses in the three previous years. You know, you're not a, you're not a genius. You can't wave a wand and then suddenly, you know, suddenly bring in, you know, an extra million pounds and, or else it would have been done before. 
But what I tried to do and I worked with Andrew McDonald with on was trying to look at where we could invest in players so that we could strengthen and start winning. Because if you're not winning matches on the field, why do you exist? Yeah. You know, and, you know, we started winning matches for the first time in four-day cricket in 2015. We'd never done that, you know, for four years. So, you know, there was a huge amount of work that we needed to do. We needed to invest in the ground. We needed to upgrade it because it had been dated. We started having concerts so we could raise extra money. We were there. We had a, we had a, a ground naming rights partner for the first time. We had all of that. But, you know, I look back on my four years at Leicestershire, Jared, and I, I really, really enjoyed my time there. I think the fans were really loyal. You know, it's hugely passionate city for sport. Mm. With the, with the four three other sports basketball rugby and football very prominent in the city, but you know we were always against the eight ball, you know and we've seen in the last two or three years and prior to me arriving sort of the previous four or five years was that you can make small incremental steps, but it's always hard to get ahead of the game because unless you've got an income of a million pounds and you're 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 bringing in half a million to a million commercial income every year, it's difficult to invest back into the team. So marrying that up where the pressure's on you as a CEO to say, well, hang on a minute, we're not winning and our side isn't good enough. So then having to invest in it, but then it comes at a cost. You invest mm. in it because you want to win matches. If you don't win matches, everyone's asking the question, you know, as I said, why the hell do you exist as a, as a cricket club? So that's the sort of thing that you have to grapple with. I think if you're a non-test match ground on a day-to-day -day basis in particular, but look, I thoroughly enjoyed my four years and, you know, I enjoyed my relationship with Andrew McDonald. It was just a shame Macca wasn't there longer. You know, he was there for two years, but we made, I think, significant strides during the time that he was there with, on the playing side in, in, in particular. Yeah, I think, again, Leicestershire at the moment looks like they're in a good position. So if you compare that back to when before when you started, it certainly yeah. looks like the club is further on. As a player, you sort of talked about getting to first-class level and plateauing a little bit mentally, right? It seems to me, if you look at your administration career, that hasn't really been the case. You keep looking at leveling up. You keep looking for new challenges. In the back of your mind, were you thinking one day I could be running an international board? Was that ever part of your plan? Yeah, look, I, I always always had this aspiration that one day I'd, you know, I'd want to be running the ICC. You know, I felt that... Same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You might have more of a chance than me, but we'll, we'll see how we go. Oh, right. but, uh, but yeah, so I always had this aspiration. And I think, again, having the belief, I did an MBA. I went and did a master's, which took me three years to do while I was working. And, you know, it kind of gave me a lot more confidence about the business world. And suddenly I, I came into the world of academia, having had zero interest in my school days, and my college days. So uh, at the age of 41, I embarked on the MBA. I did that. And I always looked at Pakistan from afar. Or I always looked at the ECB and I, and I kind of thought, you know, you know, I'd love to be running an international cricket board and looking for the opportunity for the next opportunity for myself to do it. And then obviously the, the, the Pakistan opportunity came along back in 2018 and, um, you know, I kind of grabbed it. So I just want to go back to the start because we sort of glossed over this, but I, with everything that's going on in English cricket, yeah, you, you talked about being a young Asian coming through the well, – you, you'd have been playing as a teenager in the 80s, right? And then into the 90s as a professional. There must have been racial problems and ethnic problems and even cultural problems that you had to overcome, maybe not on a near daily basis, but on a very, very regular basis. That works if my memory was a very hard drinking culture. That's probably not the background that you specifically came from. Yeah. How hard was it being the outsider in that? 
Yeah, look, firstly, I, I was very lucky because a lot of the guys that I kind of transitioned into first team with, I played with in the second 11 for a number of years. So your Dominic Osler's, your Ashley Giles's, your Dougie Brown's, your Graham Welsh's, you know, these, your Neil Smith's, these kind of guys were, we kind of all, you know, played together. And I've got to be honest, Jared, is that, you know, during my time at Warwickshire, I never felt anything overt. You know, I, I can't remember an instance where, you know, I was called certain things or, you know, I always felt that there was always a slight issue when it came to selection. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, you know, a lot of time, unconscious bias and all of these things exist, but very much in a in a covert way. And a lot of the time, you know, overtly, obviously we know with Azeem's experiences that he experienced it overtly. But back in my time in the 90s, I've got to admit that, you know, did I ever have an instance where someone said to me in the dressing room or called me the P word or said anything like that? I generally don't, I, I can't ever remember it. But did I feel at times alienated or did I feel different? Yeah, I think a lot of the times you have to come to to grips with a new environment. I know I grew up in a, in a pretty much a Pakistani community. Mm. And then suddenly being thrust into pretty much an all-white community with different values and different things, I think, was very, very new to me. But, you know, Asif Din was playing at that time at Warwickshire. We had Gladstone Small. Keith Piper was there. So we had we had a mix of players who were already playing there, quite senior players. So I certainly didn't feel like an outcast. Had I been the only one, then, you know, the conversation could have been different now with us. But I, I certainly don't remember that. You know, I certainly remember experiencing more going to watch football because Birmingham City was, was nearby from where I lived. And, you know, I think growing up in the 70s and 80s where the skinhead culture was around and you're very much sort of made to feel pretty inferior and, you know, pretty much scared a lot of the time. But with cricket, I didn't feel that. So people ask me, you know, you, you must have had things said to you. Mm. And I say genuinely, no, I can't ever re- recollect ever the P word being used or anything else derogatory. You know, yes, this, you know, some of the comments would come out about, you know, you'd go to a restaurant and, you know, Waz, tell us what curry we should have and all that. But that, that was more out of, you know, I don't think there was anything malicious in that. It was just, I then knew that I knew about those things. So they'd ask me, but I never felt that. I think it was more my inferiority complex that I had, Jared, if I'm honest, mm. in terms of understanding whether I belonged in that environment. And I think that was my biggest trepidation rather than anything overtly, covertly. You know, it took me five years to play. Could I have played earlier? Absolutely. Now, what can that be looked at? Well, you know, you'd have to ask Dermot Reeve and people like that, that question. The reason I ask that is Mm. because that should have been the environment that you were almost the biggest outsider because, as we talked about before, you you know, you're sort of a triple outsider in professional cricket at that point. You know, first guy to sign the contract, but also just everything about you was very much the outsider. That probably should have been the tougher environment to go in. Actually becoming PCB CEO, where you probably thought, wow, I'm going back to Pakistan. Finally, you know, I will be embraced. It will be tough and it will be a tough (laughs) job. You grew up a Pakistani fan. I grew up a Pakistani fan in many ways. We're both aware of the fan base is as passionate as you get, but also, you know, as, well, I would say as creative as you get in their insults, but also in in their love of, of the team. It was not easy from almost from the time you started as CEO, it was quite clear that there was a huge part of Pakistan media, Pakistan politics, who were determined to paint you as this outsider who didn't know anything about the culture and shouldn't be there. Yeah, absolutely. I I think just summarizing on the playing perspective, Jared, uh, back in the Warwickshire days, I think because I had a bat in my hand and we were all, we all had a common goal, you know, we played cricket. So there was a, 
a level of security with that. So I never felt much of an outsider apart from my own insecurities. But yeah, t- look, taking on the PCB job, I, I was appointed in early December 2018 with a view that I'd start on the 1st of February 19. I started to get a bit of an idea about the type of hostility I would face from certain elements of the media. And, you know, I have to emphasize that because I think that the majority were good, but I think the minority were more vocal. Mm. And I think that there, there were certain individuals who, right from the outset, painted me as this import. Why the hell do we need somebody else to come in from another country and tell us how to run our cricket? Despite the fact I was a British-born Pakistani, my family came from Kashmir, you know, so for me, I was going back to my spiritual home, mm. you know, as I saw it, my father's buried there, you know, um, when my father died at the age of 15 here, we took him back and buried him. So for me, it was kind of a spirituality in terms of getting this role, because I kind of thought I'm going back to somewhere where I'm going to truly belong and feel comfortable. Mm. And then seeing the hostility prior to arriving in Pakistan, people were sending me clips of videos and stuff. I was like, geez, and it was pretty cutting, you know, and but they seem to think that if you hadn't played the game at the highest level, A, you had no credibility. And secondly, you had no understanding about cricket administration should run. And I remember reminding people at the beginning saying, look, I, I'm not here to walk out onto the field. I'm not here to select the teams. My job is to run the business of cricket, run the PCA behind the scenes. So I kind of got an understanding, Jared, right from the beginning that it was going to be tough. And unfortunately, that didn't let up throughout my whole three years in, in Pakistan cricket. As I say, the certain media elements, I would call it envy, probably call it jealousy. The fact that there was a certain culture that existed with the media with through previous regimes. I came from a different school of thinking. You know, my view was that, you know, you have cordial relationships with media, mm. but if they expected me to be giving them inside tracks and inside information on a daily basis, that's not how I worked. And I think that in itself there was also lots of perks and privileges that certain elements of the media were getting prior to me arriving, trips to Dubai and various other places. Well, I don't think that many people know about this, but Pakistan, as far as I'm aware, is the only cricket country in the world where the board sends a lot of journalists on trips, which makes sense because at the time when they probably started it, they weren't going to get proper coverage. And if you go back and you follow the history of Pakistan cricket, sadly, a lot of it's not written very well because journalists weren't in the West Indies and, you know, they weren't in South Africa and those places. So the board start paying for that, but it obviously then goes in a very, very bad direction very quickly. And I would have assumed when you went in, you would have been looking at that as a, you know, as someone who worked in UK press going, why would we want this gravy train to continue? These, especially now that we're not, you know, the economy in Pakistan's a lot better now than it was in that period where that, where that system started. You must've been thinking, why on earth would we be sending journalists around the world? Yeah, and, and, and it, was, it was done as a, a sense of protection. So uh, we looked at that, and Isan Mani, myself, and, you know, Isan had, you know, been a former president of the ICC, mm. hugely respected guy, very professional individual who took me to Pakistan. You know, we both looked at it, and we said, why are we spending money on this just to keep them happy so they write nice stories about you? Because a lot of these people as well, Jared, they're not actually sports journalists. Yeah. You know, that they are just journos. So when, when they deal with sensationalism and when they deal with looking to make stories rather than report on stories, it's because they don't have the journalistic backgrounds to write in cricket, for example, be cricket correspondents. So their bread and butter is scandal, bread and butter is sensationalism. So what we try to do is build, you know, you don't build 
credibility overnight. People don't trust systems, they pr- trust people. So what Isan Mani and I try to do was use, leverage our facilitation skills and our relationships from around the world to slowly start the process of giving confidence to countries that the security situation was now at hand, you know, and try and build and help build their confidence. So I, you know, I, I went and spoke at the MCC World Cricket Committee and, and you know, and gave an update there. And I was constantly giving updates to countries about where we were to try and build a level of trust because the trust comes through people and not, not systems. So, you know, that took time. And to get Test Cricket back was no easy thing because things were still happening in Pakistan at the time. But, you know, that is something that we did. You know, we, we put a five-year strategy in place. So there's no direction prior to that. You know, women's cricket was given no credence and no value. So we invested. We bought a parental support policy in place. You know, we bought the whole of the PSL back to Pakistan. And, of course, you know, we've secured an ICC event. So... You know, I look at that, you know, we had two, three years of profit as well. So we were making a profit and obviously the pandemic's hit. So it makes life very difficult. Our costs, I think over the last 12 months, like every cricket board went through the roof in terms of trying to secure biosecure bubbles and losing TV revenue through postponements and, and everything else. But, you know, the PCB is still in a healthy state. You know, the Pakistan Super League, as I said, is now back in Pakistan. You know, yes, Najim Seti brought the PSL in, but he also produced a model that wasn't sustainable. The PSL teams were still making losses. You know, San Mani and I started a piece of work on trying to look at options and solutions, which Ramiz Raj has now taken forward. You know, and, you know, the PSL teams are now going to be in a healthy state. Um, but they were so, sold a bit of a wing and a prayer back five years ago, you know, based on we need you to do this for the nation. And But when the whole of the PSL comes to Pakistan, you'll start to make money. Well, it doesn't just happen. Your model has to be right. And so... You know, there was a number of things that had to be done in order to make that sustainable. But of course, you know, your educated fans and your educated media will see that. But, uh, you know, as I've learned, haters will always be haters, Jared. And no matter what rationale you put in front of them, they're always going to have one way of looking at things. We've talked about the media. The next part of it was the board itself. Yeah. So there was a walkout which I want to say they leaked to the media, but they didn't even really leak it to the media, did they? They, they walked out of a meeting in disgust at you being hired and then did a impromptu (laughs) press conference straight away, which is, I mean, I don't think that people outside of Indian and Pakistani and maybe even Sri Lankan cricket, I suppose Bangladesh would be on that level now and Nepal probably as well, but I don't think people outside really understand just how big these sorts of things are. Like, for instance, you know, we're recording this this episode will go up in a a week and a half, but we're recording today when Melinda Farrell is on the front page of, of the Tribune in Pakistan. And I love Mel, but it's like a cricket journalist going to Pakistan should probably be on the front page. Yeah, yeah. The cricket stories and the cricket news is so big that when me and Sam went to do Death of a Gentleman, we were the only two journalists at the ICC meeting. And you've got Pakistani people coming out of a boardroom and being able to do an impromptu press conference. It's that big, isn't it? But let's talk about the actual politics of that. It was quite clear that they either had someone else in mind or they were upset that maybe the gravy train of the way that they did things was going to be upset by someone coming in from the outside. How did that affect you? Yeah, look, just to give you a bit of context to that, I'd been in Pakistan for six weeks and my wife had kind of come over and we're looking at places to live. And so we went up to Quetta up in Balochistan for the meeting. So we used to take the board meetings all over the country. And it was my first meeting six weeks in. Just to give you some background is that, you know, the, one of the, the, the visions of the prime minister was to try and reduce the number of first class clubs or, or teams from 16 to six. 
and my first meeting with with Imran Khan, I'll never forget. So we went there and had to present on what did, what does this look like? And he said, well, what do you think to me? I said, well, look, in a nation of 220 million people, 10 teams is probably the number that you're looking at because of the pool. You know, Australia's got 20 million. So, you know, he loved the Australian system. So he's always going on about, you know, how he's experienced his playing for New South Wales and club cricket and, and whatnot. So he, I kind of gave his argument for about five minutes, 10 minutes on 10 teams. And he just stared at me and just said, I think we'll go with six. So I realized immediately that this was probably a guy who was quite straight and stubborn in his views. And mm. so we decided to go with six. So the context of that is that the board was made up of five associates or five presidents of the 16 first-class teams that we had. Mm-hmm. So the, out of the 16, five were selected through a voting system who sat on the board. So, of course, their gravy train was about to end if we were going to reduce from 16 to 6, because the likelihood was that they were probably going to be outed and someone else was going to be then representing their interests on the board, and it was going to be reduced to six teams. So there was a... Um, I guess that, that, you know, I I hadn't seen it coming. We turned up at the board meeting within about two minutes. The chairman introduced me as the new person coming in. At that stage, it was an MD role. And then it converted to a a chief exec's role seven months later when the constitution changed. But uh, as the meeting started, five of the presidents were sitting on the other side of the table. And we had our exec team on this side. They started by saying that, um, Chairman, we'd like to halt this meeting immediately. And the chairman sort of said, well, what's the issue? They looked over me, pointed at me and said, we declare that his role is null and void. It's unconstitutional. And this was the 16th of April. I still remember the date. So the chairman said, well, look, now is not the time for us to have this discussion. We'll discuss it at the end. No, we want to discuss it now. They pulled out a piece of paper, which was tabling a resolution. Now, unknown to me at the time was that they ended up getting into a bit of an argument with the chairman. Had they actually handed that piece around, tabled it properly, I probably would have been out of a job because it would have been five votes to three, Mm. the way the constitution works. But they got into a bit of an argument, insisted pretty much that it was discussed straight away. The chairman just basically said, "Then look, we can't do it. We're going to have to do it at the end. They said, right, there was a ringleader. He said to them, right, get your coats. We're going, pretty much. Picked up their stuff, walked out. So the the meeting lasted about 11 minutes, walked out. So we're all kind of sitting there. I'm thinking, you know, what the shit's going on here? What's going on here? Couldn't work out. We then sort of take five minutes and, the, the, you know, the, the meeting had to be adjourned because you didn't have the quorum. So um, we kind of sitting there for 10 minutes trying to work out. Uh, Sammy's there as our uh, director of media and comms, a good guy. And we're all trying to work out, okay, what do we do next? How do we, how do, we deal with this? So chairman said, look, let's take a five-minute comfort break, walk out, and, and um, we'll sort of um, we'll come back. As we walk out, we look sort of about 10 yards away, and this impromptu press conference is being held. And they're reading out a piece of paper and they're all standing behind this. Five of these are standing behind the ringleader. And there's about 15 cameras there. So we kind of then walk back into the room, put the TV on and it's on every TV station. And that was the other thing. Whenever we had press conferences or I was doing a press conference, this is what I try and explain to people. It would always cut to the press conference all across the seven stations. Yeah. So middle of the afternoon. And so this was happening. So my wife's sitting in the hall watching all of this, ringing me frantically, crying, saying, are you out of a job? What's happened? So I tried to explain to what had gone on. The chairman then went out and then said a few words as well, saying how disgusted he was with what took place and et cetera, et cetera. So that was probably the start of it, Jared, in terms of the hostility. There was a group who didn't want the first class system to change because they mm. were creaming the system. They then became a lobby 
quite a strong lobby. And then they kind of linked in with a lot of the media who were very anti me in the first place. So it became a concerted lobby over three years and to the point where, you know, it, it was pretty nasty at times. It was very, very personal to the point where people were being contacted in Birmingham over here in England to try and see whether they could find things on me. People were being asked to say certain things about me and, and get paid for it. So, you know, it was a pretty stressful three years to, to, to say the least. And there wasn't a lot of support internally because everybody's protecting their own positions and nobody wants to then have the media turn on them. So everyone's kind of going, look, we appreciate the issues, but hey, you know, I can't really do anything about it. So I kind of found myself on my own quite a lot, trying to having to deal with all of that and get on and do the job. It's a little bit different than the, you know, the angry Grace Road guy yelling at you as you walk around the crowd. <laughs> I mean, it's so many of your public yeah. statements also would have been broadcast live. If you sent something on LinkedIn that was misinterpreted, that would have become a newspaper article. Yeah. All these things happened to you. Yeah. The other thing that we haven't really talked about is that Imran Khan is obviously, he's the leader of Pakistan and no leader is particularly popular and he rides different waves. You would have been seen as, especially after that conversation that you were talking about before, which is from a cricket talent perspective, someone who works in that field, it just, it blows my mind that he could see Pakistan as only having six first-class teams, but you would have been seen as almost like a puppet or part of Imran Khan as well. So then you would have yeah. the politics side of things playing, which is, you know, we haven't even talked about that. I mean, the cricket stuff we get and the media we get, but you're now involved in Pakistani politics because your job is a political job, whether you want it to be or not. Yeah, definitely. Look, I, I'd have ministers ringing me, high up ministers for all sorts of various things. And, and so I learned very quickly, I was having to appear in front of Senate committees and standing committees of the government trying to explain my salary. You know, they wanted to know why I was getting, you know, if you think about... Your salary was leaked to the press, wasn't it? Immediately. And then it was extenuated and it was built up. And then I was told that I had five or six servants working at my house and I had three cars and, you know, everything they could possibly do. You know, I was pretty self-sufficient. I mean, I'd grown up in England. I'd lived in Oz. I didn't need any cleaners. I didn't need any servants. I had a driver, but I pretty much drove pretty everywhere myself. So, but the picture they wanted to paint was one of somebody who's coming basically to cream the country yeah. financially. So having to answer all the time about my perks and privileges that an employer has given you and blaming me for that was pretty tough and time-wasting, but that went on quite a long. So yeah, I, I, I understood the intrinsic nature of when the patron is also the prime minister of the country. There is, and the, and the patron selects the chairman, pretty much. Mm. The patron, in this case, Imran Khan, gets to select two people who then go and sit on the board of the PCB as his privilege. So you have that intrinsic sort of relationship immediately anyway that sits there. And I kind of understood very, very quickly that, you know, a lot of people operated through the means of survival. There was always a political reason why something couldn't be done or political consideration that needed to be taken into account. Mm. And so when you've got a nation of 220 million people who live and breathe cricket, every decision you make, you know, has an impact. A lot of things needed to be done that we couldn't do because there were sort of certain ramifications that would extend far beyond. So to give you an example, when we arrived, we were told that there were 700 people on the payroll of the PCB right? Right across the country. Mm. We were told quite rightly that, you know, most cricket boards hover around the 150 to 200 employees, most Western countries. When you try and do something about that and try and reduce the numbers, 
you're then blamed for putting people out of work and therefore people can't put bread on their table and food on their table. So that paradox that you're having to deal with, and then you're still getting blamed, well, hang on, the payroll of the PCB is still up here. Well, hang on a minute. Every time you're trying to make a change, the media go after you because they see it as you're in a third world country and you are putting people out of work, which is a tough emotional thing to deal with. You're grappling with that all the time. You know, I'm here to run cricket, try and reduce the, the costs for the PCB, increase the income, improve our, our performances on the field, but you can't actually do anything about it because mm. then you get shot down. And, you know, you had situations where, you know, one of the particular journalists who had it in for me kind of, they filmed a rickshaw driver who was a former cricketer, but he'd lost his job three years previous to us arriving. But they said that because of the new 16 teams to six, this cricketer now had had to resort to driving rickshaws in order to, to earn a living. And it was all because of me that that had happened. So no matter how much you try to explain that, you know, when the vision of the PM is to do the X, mm. your job is to implement it. You get blamed for, I guess, being the visionary behind making the whole thing happen. But look, that's part and parcel of it. But, you know, was it fair at times? No, it wasn't. You know, I think I look back impartially and I, I try and think, yeah, there were times absolutely that, you know, I should have got it in the neck for certain decisions that were made and I'm responsible for those. But other times, you know, not giving you a slap on the back when you've done something good, there was always a reason that um, they would try and knock you down. For example, I donated 1.5 million rupees of my own money, which is about £8,000 to the Players Welfare Fund because I genuinely wanted to do that. Mm. Um, because you know that was there to help them with medical costs and everything ex-players i took a salary pay cut at one stage you know to try and ease the burdens but there was always they saw it as a negative uh you know i'll look at him now you know trying to give this money to what a joke you know it was kind of seen like that so you could never win but once I'd, I'd worked that out in my own mind and i'd worked out that actually keep focused on your job keep focused on what you're here to do that's the way that I kind of operated throughout my remaining time at the PCB. Obviously, there was a steep learning curve, as there is in any sort of CEO, especially if they move countries and, and in some ways change jobs slightly. Obviously, I, I know Leicester and Pakistan are both cricket, but on completely different levels. Yeah. Anyone who came into that job wouldn't have done that job before. And there would have been the same thing. So whether you were an outsider or not, it would have all been the same thing. If it was someone from Pakistan, they might have known some of the politics better but they yeah. might not have been from as professional a cricket background as you and, and as varied yeah. a cricket background as you. That's one of those jobs where failure is part of the job. Yeah. But it's very hard for anyone who's never done that to be able to see that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that failure, you, you can't not fail across certain things. Decisions you make, absolutely. You know, you name any human being across any walk of life that doesn't make mistakes. And some substantial, some smaller ones, but oh, on a daily basis, you know, you've got to make judgment calls mm. and you've got to make them quickly. And when you've got a hundred things coming at you on a daily basis, you're going to mess up at times. And I did, but ultimately, you know, it is tough for people because they just see the end result and it's understandable that you don't expect them to understand the day-to-day -day runnings of a cricket board. You know, every CEO across a cricket board, you know, it's a tough job because when you do good things, you're expected to do it. And when things fail, then it's it's built up and times 10. So it got blown up even more in Pakistan because a some certain media were looking for mistakes on a daily basis to blow them up. And secondly, you know, cricket's the lifeblood of the country. Mm. 
So you've got everybody who's either got an interest in politics or cricket or both. You know, they're the two things that basically drive the country on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, genuinely, it was an incredible experience, positively. Leicester gave me the opportunity. They gave me the grounding. I went on to Pakistan, cricket board, and suddenly you're managing an international country. And I look back on a lot of the things that were achieved, and I kind of think, crikey, despite the environment, despite the animosity and everything else, and, you know, the, the hostility from certain quarters, you know, a lot was achieved. And I look back on that really proudly, actually. New Zealand and England cancellation. Yeah. This is right at the end. At this stage, you've shored up the PSL. The PSL is going quite well. You're now in a position where you are getting major nations coming. You've done deals with other boards. You've looked after other boards in, in COVID times as well. There's a thought that Pakistan is becoming a, a, a you know, what they once were. Everything's going well. It feels a little bit more professional on the field. I suppose coming off the back of the Mickey Arthur era, it was less about, oh, we need a new coach and more about we need to fix the entire structure of Pakistan cricket, which was, you know, I've been running about for 10 years at that point. Everything's going well. New Zealand then leaves the country literally almost straight away. And England, I mean, the England one's almost a different thing, but you're having to deal with all this. And at the same time, obviously, Ramiz Raja is now involved. And I think like, there are a lot of positives to be said about Ramiz Raja, but he's certainly, you know, I've been calling him the YouTube chairman, but he's certainly a loose unit in certain ways, but certainly in the way he speaks. Talk me through when you found out that New Zealand were going. Yeah, actually, it's ironic because I was in my apartment at, in Lahore and I was due to be traveling early. It was the first day of the game, starting later that following day, early, sort of, I think it was a six, six o'clock, 6.30 start. I think it was a I think it might have been an ODI or a T20. And so I get a call, get up to go to the bathroom. I come back and my phone's flashing. It's on silent. And I look at, and I see the worst name that I'd want to see at that time, Reg Dickinson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the head of security. Not He's a lovely bloke, but his <laughs> name is not what I want to see at 3 a.m. in the morning. Because immediately his first words were, you know, are you in Islamabad? And I said, no. He said, we've got a problem. So my first thinking was, crikey, a bomb's gone off, something's happened. I said, what's happened? He said, there's been some intelligence that's been received by the New Zealand government that there's an imminent attack on the New Zealand team if they travel to the ground today. So there's something called the Five Eyes in Pakistan, and that's made up of Canada, the US, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. And and basically, it's, it's shared intelligence from their consulates and various other things. It's private amongst those five countries. And they, if one of them gets, gains intelligence, they share it with the other four. So I said, well, what does it say? Where's the intelligence come from? He said, well, the New Zealand government aren't divulging that. And they're not sharing it with the Pakistan government, the Secret Service, uh, the ISI in Pakistan. So we don't know whether it's credible, where, where it's coming from, you know, who sent it, etc. So anyway, he said the long and the short of it, he said, you probably need to get here ASAP because... The likelihood is, mate, they're going to be returning home later today. So I jumped in the car. Literally, I was in my car within about 25 minutes at four o'clock in the morning, driving to Islamabad, which is about a four-hour journey. Arrived there sort of 8, 8.30, uh, met with Reg. And it was very early on in Ramiz's tenure, actually. He'd mm. only been in post, I think, about a week. So the poor guy was a bit bamboozled in his first week. So we had to call him and, and everybody together. We had to call the army chiefs and various other people. Uh, we had to even get the PM to speak to the PM of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern. But the, the minds were made up that it was credible. 
And I think our argument was always, well, look, can you share the information? Yeah. Don't give it to us, but give it to our intelligence people because they will be right on it. But no information was forthcoming. You know, so two of the ministers went on TV and said that they'd, they'd working with Interpol and others, that they'd, they'd got to the sources of where they came from. And, you know, there were emails being sent. I think two of the players' families were threatened. There was all sorts of various things going on. So I think that one thing that I'd learned, Jared, in three years of being at the PCB was that keeping international teams and particularly nations like South Africa, England, Australia, and South Africa from away from Pakistan suited the interests of certain people in certain countries. So we saw, you know, privately, we kind of knew where those emails had emanated from. We'd had, you know, they got to the source of where they came from, but it was too late. I mean, the New Zealand and, you know, and, and the cricket board were in a tough position. You know, David White, who I respect a lot, was in a tough position. Did it hurt? Was it demoralizing? Absolutely. All the work we'd put in, how far we'd got to, for the rug to be pulled under our feet on the day when the New Zealand team had been there four or five days, they'd enjoyed it, they were comfortable, no problems at all. And I knew the will was there from the New Zealand team and also the players to be there because they understood the symbolic nature of it. For them to walk off and get on a plane the following day and just go, it's probably fair to say that I was left to pick up the pieces and try and make sense of what had gone on over a 24-hour period from all the excitement of New Zealand returning after so many years and a non, you know, the non-West Indian team coming to us for the first time in a long time and us not having to pay anyone to come. You know, it was such a huge moment and it kind of went. And I think that, um, you know, it took quite a bit of time to kind of, I guess, recover. And then obviously the England situation happened. So, you know, I was kind of re left reflecting on where things stood and what I should do next. And, you know, did I have a career here anymore? And, you know, a lot of things go through your head because you do naturally take it on yourself. And I couldn't help but blame myself for the country's leaving. And I know it seems ridiculous because it was out of my hands, but you know, having done so much coming to England at a time when they needed us and going to New Zealand, you know, and be cooped up in a government hotel for two weeks where the players were going crazy and wanted to come back mm. to persuade them to stay and 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 adhere to all of that. You know, it was it was a, a bitter pill to swallow for me, I think. You still firmly believe that it wasn't a credible threat. We will never know, to be honest with you, from a point of view that the cricket board were given that information by their government. And once the government directive comes, I guess, to return, as far as they're concerned, the government directive supersedes anything else. And I totally understand that. And if they believe there's any threat on their citizens, then of course, based on the high level nature of New Zealand coming to Pakistan, they will do what they believe is right. But we'd had William and Kate come the year before. There'd been threats made and all sorts of stuff. You know, we backed the presidential security that was always put in place for teams. So just to give people a bit of an idea in terms of how it works, Jared, as soon as an international team comes, you write to the government and you ask them for presidential security, like any prime ministers or presidents would get visiting Pakistan. That entails pretty much everything from zero traffic from the time that the teams travel to and from the ground. So the operation is just incredible. You know, you have the, the, the army, the rangers and the police all working together in this unbelievable logistical operation to make things work. And they do it brilliantly. The hotel is pretty much like a fortress. So there's a special wing that's designated to the teams that you, nobody can get to. And every, there's a checkpoint at every point in order to get anywhere near the, the hotel and checks and balances. 
everything from the people who stay at the hotels, the, you know, the waiters, waitresses, everything, the checks are done. They have to stay at the hotel while they're there to serve the players and everything. You then, on in terms of the route then from, say, for example, to Islamabad to the Pindi Stadium, which the Australians will be having, it's around about 18 kilometers, but it takes about six, seven minutes. So it's pretty much zero traffic. So everything is, is stopped half an hour before they travel and half an hour right up until the point that they get inside the ground and then suddenly the button's pressed and everybody carries on with their normal lives again. So that's there. You've got pretty much security at every single point checked. Nobody can get anywhere near the teams in terms of traveling. They're all bulletproof cars on their way. And then when you try and get into the ground, there's seven checkpoints to get in. So you, before you get onto buses that take you then close to the ground, you're checked there. You know, you get body searched, you get everything. And then there's a checkpoint at each stage before you walk in. So it can take you up to two hours to get into the ground. That's the level of security that you have. All accreditations are done with thorough checks. So the PCB security unit and everybody else do an amazing job in terms of the, the operation itself. So that's the level of security that you get. So what we were trying to understand, at which stage and at where did they believe the credible threat mm. would take place of a potential attack? And that's the only information we were asking because we thought that, you know, if that's the level of security we have, we just need to understand. But it was never shared. They said that it would belong to the five eyes. That information was shared by one of the other countries. And a key thing for me is a key indicator of security threats is whether the travel directive changes. And my understanding was that nothing changed from any of those countries. So if there's a credible threat to uh, foreigners, mm. then generally what happens is they change the travel advice. Nothing was changed. That story sort of split everyone because we didn't know what was happening at that point. Yeah. Right? You didn't know, as we just discussed, but no one in the cricket world really knew about it either. Then England happens. It would be fair to say that when England happened, that was certainly the PR was much more in your favour. At that point, are you thinking, well, if those two have pulled out, that's perhaps it, it goes back to the dark ages again? Yeah, it, it had, had a real worry. I, th I think that the only thing, if I'm completely honest, that's probably helped us a lot, particularly with the Aussies, has been the severe backlash that England got from pulling out. I think that it mm. probably you, you saw the, the global condemnation that came out and it, it was documented. You know, everybody was talking about it. There was a real worry at the time that Australia, who were pretty sensitive to security concerns, it's probably putting it lightly, um, <laughs> and obviously the Players Association as well there, how they would be viewed. I think the thing that went in our favour, we had a good four months before Australia were due to come. They sent their sort of recce as well over, the security people, to work with the PCB to look at everything that was going to be put in place. Mm. I think Pakistan, the PCB, were, we were lucky that Shane Watson was the president of the Players Association. He'd been over on a number of times to Australia. You know, so it's interesting, but I always maintained a level of confidence that the, the distance between those two countries making the decision and when Australia were due to come would give an opportunity to actually then, I guess, deal with that situation about Australia coming. They weren't coming to meet. The PSL was going to be taking place. There were going to be a lot of foreign players coming to play in it. So that was a bit of a um, a good thing. You know, you, you know, you had Aussie players there as well, your Ben Cuttings and your Faulkners and these sort of people. So there was a level of confidence that if they were coming and they were experiencing the security and everything else and that information would get back favorably mm. you know we're indebted i think for us to australia to come uh, no doubt that they would have had their fears and they would have had some issues about players coming 
the fact that um, I think Usman Khawaja is in that group, I think probably helped us a lot with just allaying some of the fears for the players. But, you know, the, the positivity and the way that Cricket Australia made the decision, the fact that, you know, a lot of their senior exec people are over there as well to make a point of it, I think is massive for the country. I mean, you know, people are thanking the Aussie team for coming. It's so critical, Jared, for the country with the strides we'd made over the last two or three years. If Australia had pulled out, then I think it would have been a massive setback to the country. And let's not forget South Africa came the last February as well, mm. you know, to Pakistan and they came and played two tests and three, three T20s. So they were the first country to come as well prior to New Zealand and England and then Australia coming as well. So, you know, the Australians would not have come unless they thought that, that the player's safety was fully in place in terms of looking after their security needs and everything else. I think that the PCB have done a, an incredible job, both with the biosecure bubble they put in place for the PSL and now for what they've done with what they've put around the Aussies. So, you know, we just pray that the whole tour continues and, and finishes. That's the biggest thing. You leave before this tour, obviously. It would seem from the outside that Ramiz Raja came in and yourself left. Is it that simple? Is it you're at the end of your tether? What specifically, you know, sort of, and I'm assuming there was a lot of issues, but what was it about leaving that position? I think firstly, look, just in terms of Ramiz, you know, he's, he's a cricketing icon in the, in the country. And, you know, I'd always and always have had a good relationship with him. I think that I, well, I had four months left on my contract. My family were based back in the UK. It'd been a hugely stressful three years. And I think mentally it started to take its toll on me, genuinely. So I kind of knew that Ramiz wanted to take things in a different way. So it kind of became obvious to me that my role would probably be quite downgraded under his tenure in terms of the job itself. And he would take on more of a lead, almost sort of chairman stroke CEO in terms of making decisions. So that coupled with the fact that, you know, I potentially wanted to come back anyway after my contract finished at the end of January. I kind of already made my mind up once he'd come in and once Hassan had left. Mm. I think it made my decision a little bit easier because I'd enjoyed a good relationship with Hassan. Very different people. Yes. Rummies for all of his passion, very upfront, very outspoken. You know, that's not what you were dealing with before. You were dealing with probably one of the most respected leaders in cricket before that. And that's not having a go at Rummies Raja because he's yeah. just started. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think Hassan afforded me that responsibility. And, you know, he was a, a quieter sort of leader who got on and did, did things very unfazed, very risk averse. Whereas Ramiz um, kind of came in with a bit more of a gung ho attitude. And I think, you know, more sort of to do with his personality in terms of how you are, I think, you know, what he's realized, and I think this is a huge credit for him, is that perhaps he's realized that. And from what I'm hearing, he's taking more of a slower approach now, understanding that there are processes mm. and things that you have to go through before you make decisions. I think a, a leader is about being inclusive, but also understanding when you have to make single-minded decisions. I think if you, as a leader, make decisions all the time to try and prove that you're the boss and this is how you operate and everybody will fall into line, I think you lose people quickly, you lose morale in an organization and productivity reduces. You've got good people around at the PCB who've been around for a long time who know what they're doing. And I think that he's now started to involve them a lot more. I think he kind of came in thinking, I've got to prove to Imran Khan that I can get things done quickly. Yeah. 
he used to say that Imran Khan said, you know, you really have about three months, you know, to make decisions before things start. You fall into a malaise, which I found a bit of an odd approach. But I think that my view is always that you spend three months to understand what's going on in an organization. And then you start to make decisions. Of course, there are quick wins that you assess as a leader very quickly. And there are things that you know are going to take longer to, to put in place. I think it's weighing up, making sure your ego doesn't get in the way of making sound decisions. And, and I think that that's always a, a, a something that as leaders, you always got to rein in is your ego because egos can push you into wrong decisions, destroying relationships and all the other things. And I think it's easy to walk in and say everything was rubbish. That's not what leadership's about. Um, you know, I've, I've worked as a sports administrator for nearly 15 years and you, you learn on the job and you learn that you learn and lead and then you lead and learn and it's a cycle. Mm. You know, you're always learning something new that then helps you change the way you lead that's going to be very different to how you've done it before. And I think as long as you're open to that and not closed-minded, I think you can improve. I think, as I said, is you know, Ramiz is, I think his heart's absolutely in the right place for Pakistan cricket. What I would say is that he probably still needs to give himself time to do things properly, sustainably. Mm. Yes, he can get quick wins, but what's the collateral damage in five years of decision-making now? And I think these are the things you have to bear in mind when you're a leader and you're making decisions. But, you know, we all want Ramiz to succeed because if Ramiz succeeds, Pakistan cricket succeeds. And I still feel very emotionally connected to what goes on in Pakistan cricket because, you know, I gave three years, left my family in a tough environment. And you don't do that if you've got no passion for what you're doing. So, you know, we want Ramiz to succeed and, you know, we want nothing better for Pakistan cricket to be thriving on the international stage. Just to finish off, as a cricketer, you sort of plateaued and couldn't inspire yourself. It feels like, I mean, you said before, you know, the ECB job, the ICC job, there are other jobs not to mention other cricket boards who might come calling as well. It feels like that you've found your real passion now and it's you're, you're going to push yourself as far as you can get with that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think what experience teaches you, Jared, it also teaches you what you're good at and what you're not good at. And I think that my, my experience has kind of brought me to a place where I, I know what I'm good at. I know the business of cricket and I get all of that. And, you know, I still genuinely believe that serving the world game in some capacity is something that will stir my soul and be involved with it. You know, Chance to Shine, I got involved in it because it was close to my heart, you know, getting more kids playing, doing all of that. And I've never taken on anything where I don't have a passion for doing it. And, you know, my next role, whatever that might be, might be within cricket, might be without, outside of cricket, wherever the opportunities come. I know that whatever I decide to do, I'll do something because it feels right to, to do that. I've just set up a, a global MBA in the business of sport as well to try and develop the next generation of sports leaders. Because one thing I realized is that sports administration has changed so much and there's so many facets to sports administration and there was nothing out there that actually gave you a rounded understanding or knowledge of the business of sport. So everything from media, broadcasting rights to sports law to sporting franchise models, whatever it might be. So in my three, four months in my off time, I've kind of set that up. And hopefully I've got a few UK universities who are going to run it and a couple internationally as well. So up until the point where my next role comes along, this is something that I'm feeling very passionate about and want to do. And I've kind of driven myself to do that. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jared.
Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Cricket. Sports Social Podcast Network.